and see where it goes. Oh. Because every second the treasury grows. Oh. If we follow the money and see where it leads, get in the weeds. Look for the seeds of Hamilton's misdeeds. It must be nice. It must be nice. Follow the money and see where it goes. It must be nice. It must be nice. The Emperor has no clothes. Good morning and welcome to episode 844 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by our Patreon supporters and the Baseball Reference Play Index. I'm Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Sam. Yo. Today we're doing our Washington Nationals preview. Later in the show, Jeff Paternostro will talk to James Wagner of the Washington Post. We are talking to James Wagner's colleague at the Washington Post, Chelsea Janes, who also wrote the BP annual essay for the Nationals this year. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, how are you? All right. So all the negative stuff that came to define the 2015 team, Matt Williams and Papelbon and people getting choked, how much of that was a symptom and how much of that was a cause? I mean, in other words, if the Nationals hadn't had their many injury issues that sort of had them underplay expectations early in the year, does that stuff become such a big story in the second half? Do they win a division with a different manager or a different closer? I think it was more symptomatic than a cause. I think the injuries really undid them and sort of put them in a position where they were going to be playing catch up late in the year. I think they had something like five or six of their key players come back all at the same time, which was, you know, it felt good at the time. You think, oh, you know, they're going to be prepped and primed for this August run. But then you realize none of these guys have seen live pitching in months. And it, it materialized that way. It looked like it. So, and then I think obviously you see the Mets start to take off and you start to just feel it. And that's when things evolved. So I think the negativity sort of was symptomatic and not really a cause of their disappointing state. And was the kind of Captain Quigish image of Matt Williams late last season, was that something that developed over time? I mean, was it clear from day one that he was out of his depth or did the situation just spiral out of control? Well, it's interesting. And that's a funny way to put it. I think when he was, you know, the manager of the year, the year before, and, you know, less criticized and maybe some of those issues were still there, but I think that it was magnified when things started to go out of control. And I think maybe he wasn't quite as well equipped to handle the adversity and the tougher times, just kind of the way he went about it. And, you know, someone else who's been around it for a longer time, I think that's kind of when his inexperience got exposed. And, you know, he was you know fine with a lot of the players and it certainly wasn't an every guy didn't like Matt Williams thing. It's just that I don't think he was completely comfortable being in the clubhouse and being a vocal and emotional presence that I think you need at times like the ones they had last year. So I think it's a fairly accurate portrayal, but I, I don't think, and I don't think you know he was better the year before. I think that just kind of the way the year went, it maybe exposed some of the things that you know he never had to deal with before, and that's sort of what you saw. I don't know. One of the odd storylines of the offseason was the uh, near hiring of Bud Black and then the ultimate hiring of Dusty Baker. And what's sort of odd about that or interesting to me about that is that there's so many differences between – Dusty Baker and, and Bud Black in terms of their age, their experience, uh, you know, their playing careers, one a pitcher, one a, one a hitter, uh, their, you know, seeming philosophies about baseball, their reputations, all those sorts of things. And so uh, it's interesting that they would land on both of those guys at separate times. Is there something about that they share in common? Is there a characteristic in common 
that you think that the Nationals went looking for that landed them on both of those? I guess what I'm asking is, is there something consistent that might be a, uh, you know, a reaction to the Matt Williams experience in them? Or do they just like them uh, separately for totally different reasons and they did not go into their managerial search uh, looking for a particular type or a collection of traits in their manager? I think the thing that connected them was besides having managed team before and done so for a fairly significant amount of time was that they're sort of visible personalities and guys that have reputations as being good with players and being respected by a variety of players. And I think certainly Bud Black and Dusty Biggs go about that in different ways, but I think they're both known to treat people very well in the clubhouse and just kind of have a good, you know, have their finger on the pulse, excuse the cliche, of, of really how a lot of different kinds of people are feeling in there. And so I think that's sort of just what the Nationals wanted. I think they wanted somebody who you know, wasn't a risk, someone they sort of knew what they were getting, someone who's been proven to at least be able to handle things, a variety of things in a different place. And then, yeah, just someone who could relate to the players and kind of get a nice, upbeat, positive, outward face after, you know, kind of a debacle at the end of last year. The, Matt Williams was sort of part of this trend, this little boomlet of managers getting hired, former players getting hired, fairly young and really without much experience, uh, explicitly no experience as a manager. Matt Williams had a, a little experience coaching first and third base, but uh, he was part of this group of guys that were sort of seen as being a fairly inexperienced and uh, perhaps a, a, a trend. Do you think that he is a data point uh, against that trend, uh, you know, in favor of hiring guys with experience, or uh, just uh, one one person in his own individual experience that doesn't necessarily tell us much about, you know, Brad Osmus or Craig Council or or whatever. Yeah, I I mean, I haven't really worked with any of those other guys that you mentioned, the Osmuses, and just kind of that whole uh, genre of manager. I guess I will say that last year was my first year on the Nationals beat, and. You know, you come in with all these expectations and you see the talent and you sort of think, okay, how does this team not win? And then I got here this year with Dusty there and you're like, yeah, there was something missing. And it sounds really cliched and just I can't back it up with anything kind of tangible, numerical, but there's a different kind of feel. There's a different assuredness, I think, about him that makes you feel like, okay, whatever happens, he's going to have been there before. And whatever the numbers say, he's going to know how to apply them. He's not. You know, there's just there's just an experience there that I think I certainly underestimated because you know I've grown up in a numbers age and think hey if you plug in a guy who knows how to you know handle situations you should be fine but there's a, a people managing aspect there I think especially with a veteran team like the one they have where there's a lot of personalities that really matters and makes a difference and certainly you know in spring training everything feels different and better and hopeful but I think. For these guys, this is kind of what they need and what fits their clubhouse. So I don't know if it's you know a data point against the trend, if it's what, but I think for this kind of team, they need somebody who could manage the people a little bit better and just has been there before and able to kind of get them through those ups and downs. Was trading Drew Storen the only way to resolve that lingering problem and Papelbon is still around? Is he doing anything to endear himself to his teammates? Is he bringing bagels in the morning or anything? <laughs> I think getting I think Drew had to go both for his sake and the teams. I think that relationship had just been so, you know, rocky and muddled and, you know, emotionally charged over the years and it didn't end well. And it, I think they kind of had to clear him out. Tappelbot has been a major factor in the clubhouse in a positive way. And nobody in DC wants to hear that. The fans are going to boo him mercilessly. But I can say, you know, unequivocally, he has been a, a major presence. He's the guy choosing the music. 
he's helping young pitchers develop other pitches. You know, he's trying to get Gio Gonzalez to run harder and win 20 games and do whatever he wants. And he's a a big presence. And you ask guys about leadership in there, and that's been one of the questions because you lose Ian Desmond, you lose some of these guys. Like, who is that guy? And a lot of them bring up his name. So far from bringing a problem in there, he's he's kind of a crazy guy. You know, you kind of know you're getting that. But he hasn't been negative. I think all the attention was, was totally on the outside. No one in there internalized it. And, you know, whether that's true when things go bad or if he starts going big, we'll see. But for now, he's been a presence that a lot of people have seemed to look to in there because he's been there. He's won, and they haven't. And I think that sort of heals everything on some level. Do you think that the the difference between how we all respond to Papelbon, especially in the Harper situation and how apparently the team does, is it more about us not having enough information to, to really have a nuanced take uh, of his personality and his role? Or is it more that we prioritize, you know, as, you know, as people, as readers, as, as observers, we prioritize different things than players do? I mean, do players, I guess, do players see Papelbon the same way we do, but they like it? Or do they see Papelbon differently than we do? I think when you see Jonathan Papelbon, what you see is what you get. He is that guy who, you know, loves to talk about guns and hunting and wears shirts people don't like and doesn't care what anyone thinks. But maybe the information that people don't have is that, or maybe it's kind of mixed up, but we sort of have this perception that that precludes you from going about baseball business the right way, right? We think, okay, this guy is crazy off the field. He can't, you know, this crazy personality. He probably doesn't work that hard. He's probably a jerk to his teammates. And it's just not true. You know, he, he works his butt off and you know, I heard seen in the clubhouse, he's always in the weight room, and it's really fascinating. It's a good question because, you know, I grew up watching the Red Sox, and I always thought he was a nut, you know, and, and you come in and you see what this guy does, and he's certainly a, a polarizing personality, but he seems like a great teammate and, and works very hard, and I think it's not so much that people don't see who he is. I think it's that they sort of think that part of him, that personality, that I don't care what you think part, precludes him from doing things well baseball-wise and preparing himself and being a professional, and he certainly is those things. I mean, even during little ground ball drills, you know, early on in spring training, he was making guys go back and do it again because they wouldn't yell, I got it, three times instead of two. And it's stuff like that that I don't think people don't see and would assume a guy like that wouldn't do, but he does, and he cares, and I think maybe that's what his teammates see and understand that the public doesn't. That sounds really annoying. (laughs) <laughs> like they're grown-ups like the like telling a guy at this stage in his career how to call like there's actually a point in in our book when ben sort of makes fun of a fan who is yelling at the players to call it as though they don't know you know how to call the ball i mean you know it seems like calling the ball like that feels to me fairly kind of condescending and maybe not that helpful i don't know I mean, is it condescending if Todd Frazier or Ian Desmond or someone who people like does it? You know, I think you feel differently about it. And, you know, I think we feel differently about Papelbon saying something to Harper, whether he was right or wrong. And I have really thought hard about that and don't really have a good answer. But, you know, if it's a different guy than Jonathan Papelbon yelling at a different guy than Bryce Harper, or even if it's Jason Morris or Ian Desmond, it's received differently. And, you know, I think that's part of it, too. It probably is annoying. But it, it sort of establishes that accountability that you didn't see last year, that you have to do things the right way. You have to take that detailed approach. That's who Max Scherzer is. That's who a lot of their, you know, the big names now on their clubhouse are, very detail-oriented. And I think that's sort of what wins. You know, it certainly can't hurt. So, but yeah, I mean, it is annoying. But it's just interesting to me, you know, how would we feel that way if it were coming from someone that wasn't Jonathan Papelbon? Was he, uh, was he good 
last year it went after he came to the nationals I, it's hard for me to know without having seen him but yeah he like the strikeouts went way down he gave him a bunch of home runs uh if you include his unearned runs he gave up quite a few runs was it just like a bad outing or two or like did he it was okay i mean things evolved after he choked harper that you know obviously the week leading up to that and there was a met series in there where things fell apart for them he was terrible gave up i think two games if i remember correctly part of the epidemic the bullpen was suffering where they couldn't get anybody out even with six and seven round leads so he really did pitch well i mean i don't think he blew a save until august and that's obviously slipped between philly and washington but he, he wasn't bad until that kind of one week and then obviously he choked the mvp and got suspended which isn't good but pitching wise he looked fine and he looked good this spring the numbers are a little bit skewed by one bad outing where he was pretty sick and probably shouldn't have been out there but he's been fine i think i think he'll be Jonathan Papelbon this year you know you, you kind of know what you're getting from him in that aspect and as you mentioned the Nationals did lose a lot of talent this offseason a lot of free agents left how much of a factor was the Masson dispute in their decisions about whether to spend or not spend first you know it, it didn't seem like it was a big factor I think that they do feel and whether they you know kind of have the money to reach outside of it and just aren't using it or not it seems like they're very tied to the fact that they don't want to use too much or go too deep in their pockets without knowing what's going to come from TV revenues and how that's all going to work out. And I think that they thought by now it would be resolved and they'd have a little bit of extra money in their pockets. So they you know, got used to kind of offering deferred money, and that was how they handled it, they defer money. And now they're still doing the same thing, and you know, guys aren't taking it because they understand that you know, obviously with deferred money you're getting less overtime than you would if you took it in the shorter, you know, present day. And I think that's what happened with Festivus, besides maybe his desire to stay in New York. So I think it has been a big factor. I think people sense there's something weird happening there that there may be money to build later on that may not be. And then there's been all the other stuff with Matt Williams and stuff that just wasn't really a good fit when you could go somewhere like Chicago where Hayward and Zobers did or somewhere where everything kind of seems to be clicking into place in a big way. So I think it's a big factor. And I think for players and people in the game who sort of understand the financial state of things even better than I do, I think it's a, not that that's hard to do, but I think it's a big, you know, kind of a big sticking point for them. And it makes them hesitant to want to join that team. And they dismissed their entire athletic training staff after last year. Did you see that as more of a, a scapegoat move or did you think that there were ways that they actually weren't, you know, helping their players come back from injury in the best way possible? And have you seen them do anything different in that respect this year? I think it was half scapegoat, half history. You know, I don't think that they like thought there was any like egregious malpractice or anything like that, but you know, they just were never healthy. They couldn't stay healthy. And you know, at some point you just kind of like, throw up your hands and change something. So I think they were a little bit of a scapegoat, but I also think there was something to it that, you know, there had to be a change. Something had to change in the way things were done. Um, and they have been doing things differently. I think the guys have been tested, from what I understand, and they're obviously pretty quiet about it all just for all the medical reasons, but the guys have been tested for, you know, dietary things in ways that they weren't before and gotten all kind of looked at for their predisposition to certain injuries, and they're trying to really kind of preemptively prevent as opposed to kind of having to react and have the right people in there. They obviously want to have the right people to treat things when they do happen, but I think their emphasis was bringing in people that would help prevent in the first place. And they saw a lot of soft tissue injuries last year, which from what everyone tells me, you know, indicates that maybe that's something and how you prepare. So I think they're really trying to avoid that this year. And I mean, by this time last year, you had Denard's Van, Jason Worth, and others already out. Anthony Rendon, 
by this time in spring already done for months. So I mean, so far so good in a very small sample size. What are uh, what are soft tissue injuries? What are what is that category limited to? Uh, like sprain. I think from what I understand, like weird. I don't. I think kind of stuff like that is how explained to me. Like not broken bones. You know, not like impact with the injuries, but quad strains and hamstring issues. And I might be describing them wrong, and I'm probably embarrassing myself with terminology that I don't understand. But I think kind of the stuff that you think, huh, maybe if they had trained a little bit differently, you don't have the same problems with a quad that keeps you out and turns into an oblique strain and turns into whatever. You know, you you have a broken bone and it heals in your back and you're fine. And I think that things just lingered a little bit too long for everyone's comfort with things like sprains and strains and whatever. And so I think that's kind of what they're trying to prevent. So Jason Worth last year dropped five to six wins from his previous year, which I, I don't know, I haven't looked, but it would not surprise me if that was the biggest drop uh, of any player in baseball. Five Unless point. it was Anthony Rendon. Yeah, maybe. Um, maybe it might have been Anthony Rendon. But five, you know, he went from basically a five-win player to a, a well-below-replacement player on both baseball reference and, and baseball prospectus. And that's like a mate, like that's like insane. Like It's incredible that we live in a world where in one year a guy can go from uh, MVP candidate to one of the worst players in baseball. Like that, oh God, just think about that. That's crazy. But how uh, is there, I mean, we, he's been sort of written off before earlier in his career, like in his when he joined the Nationals as being um, on the decline. And then he wasn't on the decline. He came back. He was very good. Is there a case uh, that this is different? Is there a case that he's actually a very strong bounce back candidate who should still be, um, you know, just below all-star level or something like that? I do think there's a case. I just don't think anyone really knows what to expect. I don't know that he even knows what to expect. I think, you know, he, he was really limited last year and was learning left field and just never seemed to have his legs under him. He looked okay this spring. He's got a lot of moving parts kind of in that swing, so it's kind of hard to tell if that'll click or if he's just all over the place or what. But I think there's a case to be made. I think he'll be helped by the fact that he's now at the point where they have to say, we know we need to give Jason Worth X number of days off every two weeks. And they've got a guy in Michael A. Taylor who they can plug in there and not worry about it. And they can give Worth rest and kind of make sure he's healthy. I think he thinks that if he's healthy and gets regular bats, and we sort of saw it at the end of last year, that he'll hit. And his numbers over his career have shown that. There's the only time his average dropped to the point it did were when he was hurt and didn't get time. And he never really got to get acclimated last year. So I think if they can kind of keep him on the field and manage his playing time, that there's a case to be made that he'll be the same Jason Worth over that, you know, smaller group of bats. I don't think he's an everyday 150 game player anymore. I don't think, I think he understands that, but I think he can put up Jason Worth numbers over 130, 120 games and the Nationals will be very, very pleased to have that. The Nationals were not a speed team last year. They had the second fewest steals in the National League, and they hired base running genius Davey Lopes. And and now, as we speak, they are twenty three for twenty four in their steal attempts this spring. Is this one of those things where you know a team will make a conscious decision to change something in spring training, and they'll look totally different, and then the season starts and they sort of settle back into their old ways, or do you think that this will really be sustained throughout the season? I think it'll be sustained. And I think the reason I believe that is because I've seen people like Bryce Harper running. And I don't think you run the MVP in games or kind of give him that green light if you don't have an intention to use him, you know, during the regular season. Like, why risk it? I think he's very excited to run. I think a lot of these guys are excited. I think they've got a lineup that lends itself to having, you know, maybe seven even stolen base threats, depending on who's in there, guys who can legitimately go steal a base if you need it. 
and they all have raved about Davy Lopes and, and Dusty Baker has talked about almost you know speed contact, all that stuff. I know a lot of teams do it this time of year, but it looks like it's been fun for them. I mean, they've had guys go. I mean, it seems like every time somebody's on base, he's gone. You know, it's immediate. So I think it'll be, and they've had success in spring training, which to me says, okay, like, you know, you take from that that maybe this could work. Maybe this can be something we do. They've got guys that can bunt. They can play that game now as with their lineup with Daniel Murphy and Ben Revere. So I think it'll be something that continues, and I think it'll really help them sort of to just kind of have that little extra edge creatively that they never had last year when they were kind of just waiting for a big hit and, you know, striking out far more than you know they could have imagined, I think. Are you expecting to see an even better Bryce Harper? Is that possible coming off the best offensive season we've seen since Bonds? I think I don't see any reason outside of injury that he wouldn't be the same guy. You know, at least I, I think he's got the mindset now and understands how not to kind of push, you know, extend the strike zone, how to wait for his pitch, how to take his walk. I think he's sort of adjusted and grown up in his mindset enough at the plate that if he is out there every day, the production will be there. Now, whether you know he can stay healthy, whether he kind of continues to do what he said he was doing last year and try not to run into walls when he doesn't have to and maybe try not to slide at first too much, I don't know. But I think in terms of his approach at the plate, he got to a point last year where if he's healthy, if the swing is there, he should put up those kind of numbers. And I think he thinks that way, but everyone else was so impressed by that season, but that's just who he thinks he should be. So, And I think I agree with him, again, if he's healthy the numbers should be comparable, you know, probably, you know, if anyone pitches to him and I think with the lineup they have, they're going to maybe have to, if anyone, if everyone or more of those guys are healthy than were last year. And the team's top two prospects, Lucas Giolito and Trey Turner have either arrived already or are close to arriving. How much of a contribution do you expect those two to make this year? I think Turner will probably be a midseason arrival if he doesn't somehow work his way onto the opening day roster. I think we'll see him this year. I think they want him to be the everyday shortstop. I think they need to see a few more things from him, but he's a quick adjuster at the plate. He went through you know, two organizations, three levels last year, and you know hit eventually at all of them um, with the exception of the majors, but he got you know, no bad basically. So I think they really, I think we'll see him. I don't know that you'll see Giolito this year. Maybe, maybe late. I mean, I would assume maybe in September, but I think they think he is a part of that rotation next year. And he, he's coming. I mean, the stuff is there. He could probably pitch for them this year, but you know, they obviously want to preserve that resource since it's going to be very important for them moving forward, particularly in a future that may not include Steven Strasburg. Mm-hmm. All right. So give us a win total prediction. How many wins do you envision the Nationals having in 2016? 88. All right. And is that enough to save Mike Rizzo so that the team has to pick up Mike Rizzo's 2017 and 2018 options by June 15th? So are they just sort of making him sweat or do these next few months really determine whether that option gets picked up or not? And and if it doesn't, is there a possibility for a midseason change? I would expect it to get done sooner than later. I don't think that, you know, May, you know, April and May are an audition period, but I could be wrong. But my sense is that it it will probably happen. You know, he's built them into a contender from from nothing and he had obviously two good picks to do it with in Harper and Strasburg, but he's he's left you know, he's built them into a pretty good position to be relevant for a while and I, I think that they'll understand that and would uh I think it'll probably happen. All right. So you can read Chelsea Jane's coverage of the Nationals at the Washington Post and find her on Twitter at Chelsea underscore Janes. Thanks, Chelsea. Thank you so much. All right. Stay tuned after the break to hear Jeff talk to James Wagner. Musty, dusty, tattered. 
a Washington Post double feature here for our 2016 Nationals preview. Here in part two, we are joined by James Wagner, Nationals beat writer. James, welcome to the show. Thanks, thanks for having me. So after a 2015 marred by injuries and bunkhouse brawls and the Nats dugout, yeah. is the 2016 team somehow maybe a little bit underrated? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would probably say so. I mean, obviously the Mets, you know, the team that, uh, you know, beat up on the Nats last year um, and won the division, you know, made it all the way to the World Series. Like so many people, uh, you know, are are picking uh, the Mets obviously to repeat as division winners uh, this year. So yeah, I meant I mean they have a lot of returning parts. Their pitching is, is there. The pitching that fueled kind of their run is intact. Uh, I think they've added a couple of pieces that make them better in a way. Uh, so I think uh, you know the the Nets for the first time in probably you know four or five years, uh, four years maybe have been you know aren't seen as as the favorites in the division, um, which I think maybe based on the personalities in the clubhouse. Uh, maybe the way they've handled pressure in some situations in the past uh, might work out better for them in the long run. In a disappointing 2015, one bright spot was the emergence of Bryce Harper into a MVP caliber player. What does he do for an encore in 2016? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think the signs were there from 2012 to, to 14 to for what was going to happen in 15. Um, he kept swearing that if he just stayed on the field, stayed healthy, that this stuff would happen, and it did. Uh, you know, I mean, he was a good, very good player from 12 to 14. Um, he was just limited um, in playing time and injuries, uh, and he, he and he played injury free last year. You know, you know, Nick, you know, dinged up and, and nicked up here and there, uh, but stayed on the field, avoided the major injury, played smarter, um, and you saw what happened um, from the home runs, the power, and not just that, but just to the walks, the patience, and what was incredible, just watching him, you know, get maybe a handful or less. Of hittable pitches every game, and he was capitalizing. You know, maybe you know two, three pitches a game that he would see that he could crush, and he was doing that. So, yeah, I mean, I can't help but think that you know, at, at 23, uh, you know, he is able to, to produce this. You know, he the the patience, the power. Uh, I wouldn't see any reason why it would disappear because he he showed this up before and matured last year and became became uh, I guess you know less you know as the hitting coach Rick Shue likes to say he was raging less. You know, he was controlling himself a little more. Um, I can't help but think that he could produce something similar or close to it this year. Um, last year was historic, obviously, but I think with a, maybe a better and healthier surrounding cast this year, uh, you know, maybe he won't produce those, those, the, the total numbers, uh, but he still produce the rates at, uh, at that level. So he's already been in the news a little bit this month, and really there's no important stories in March unless they involve injuries, but this is an interesting one. Some of the things he said in the press about being an entertainer and what he likes to see on the field as far as celebrations go have rubbed some people the wrong way and he's always sort of courted controversy a little bit in the media whether it's through his fault or not but what's he like to cover day in and day out yeah i mean i guess like starting with those comments it's just like you know i think a lot of people a lot of young players i've read about or seen you know really have not disagreed with what bryce has said i think they just you know i think just maybe the way he said it or more than anything it's just like he's just a target i think he's a target uh, for a lot of people, just by the way he plays, you know, how brash and maybe kind of confident and cocky he comes off, the things he said in the past. Uh, but really, I thought it was a pretty earnest thing to say. Uh, you know, he has not found a lot of young players, at least I have not seen a lot of young players, that are overtly, you know, disagreeing with, with what he's saying. Uh, maybe Mike Trout, but, uh, you know, some of the other ones, like Chris Bryant, Jose Fernandez, have, have kind of agreed. Uh, but, I mean, on, the, on a daily basis, I think Bryce, you know, doesn't, doesn't really show as often to the public uh, but seeing him around every day, you know, he is a lot, uh, you know, I don't say this in a bad way, but he's a lot smarter and a lot kinder than people realize. You know, he is, he goes out of his way to take care of fans. 
uh, you know, during games, before and after. You know, he his teammates have said, you know, glowing things about how he's grown as a teammate and as a person, thinking about other people, not necessarily about himself, compared to, you know, several years ago when he first came up. And on top of that, he's observant. Um, and he's able to articulate the game. You know, I think on one-on-one conversations in talking to him, he's polite. Um, he's very observant. Uh, he's confident in himself. I mean, it, it, you have to be to reach the majors at 17. You know, to to, to be drafted at 17. You know, and uh, you know, like like he was, and then to be rookie of the year at 19, um, and win the MVP last year at such a young age. You have he's played above. He, he's played up his entire life. Uh, so that kind of just comes with the territory. But, you know, I, I don't think he is the kind of brash punk uh, that kind of people get the you know, image of him out there that, uh, you know, you see him around every day. His breakout last year, another young national star, might have gone a little bit overlooked in that Steven Strasburg. In the second half last season, posted a 1.9 ERA and a video game level 92 to 8 strikeout to walk ratio in 66 innings. Was just just a matter of him finally being healthy, and can he continue this in 2016? Absolutely, I think that it was a matter of getting healthy. I think that you know the the ankle sprain he suffered, you know, just near the end of spring training, um, might not get you know didn't get much notice then, but it really wrecked havoc on on him and his mechanics. You know, he tried to overcompensate. Um, it was more serious than uh, than he wanted to, to admit. Um, he tried to pitch through it, uh, tried to be tough, um, it ended up messing with him. He was not landing properly. Uh, you know, then it ended up messing up uh, his delivery in, in his upper body. You know, he, he was feeling it up there. Then he had a cyst up, you know, a cyst type thing up near his shoulder that needed to be removed this offseason. Uh, something was always kind of nagging him to the point where when he finally stepped away and came back in the second half, uh, kind of righted everything, got healthy, aligned his mechanics, but, you know, he, he put up those numbers like we saw. So I think that is a better version of Strasburg. That's the one I think that at this level, at this point of his career, he's matured and grown into. Um, obviously, it comes at a fortuitous time for him. You know, he is, you know, he's in a walk year this year, um, and he can kind of like recapture that form he had last year uh, at the end of last season. I think it obviously bode well for him. Uh, but I think staying healthy, you know, commanding the fastball a lot better, not missing over the middle. And then, you know, you, you think you saw last year he was using his changeup less and kind of relying on the curveball more. And that curveball, you know, was pretty deadly for him. So I think that combination worked really well for him. And also, obviously, learning when to be tough and when to pick through, pick through injuries. And when really to, to say, no, I can't take this anymore, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be, I'm going to actually hurt the team more than I'm going to help help the team by pitching through this. So as you mentioned, he is entering his free agent season, his walk season. He's a Scott Boris client, and the Nationals have already let Jordan Zimmerman go from this young rotation as he left for Detroit in the offseason. What do you think Strasburg's future is in Washington, if there is one in fact? Yeah, you know, the, the team has said all the right things about wanting to keep him. Uh, you know, obviously they drafted, developed him, um, watched him grow to this point. So I think, you know, they've said the right things about keeping him. Obviously, it's going to reach, it's going to have to reach an ownership decision whether they actually truly want to keep him, uh, how much him it'll cost and how much he will cost in command. You know, obviously, you know, he's younger, has better stuff than Jordan Zimmerman, and Jordan Zimmerman got five for $110 million this offseason. So you would obviously think the stress world would come in more. Obviously, both of them have had TJ, uh, Tommy John surgery in the past. And the Nationals are wary of of guys and, uh, with Tommy John and their second help all and, and what the lifespan is on those. But, you know, they've said they want to keep them. They want to keep them long term. Who knows if the numbers will match up, if they'll be able to do that. Uh, but you can't help but wonder. I mean, they, they did not uh, reach a long-term extension with Ian Desmond. He left for the Rangers. They did not reach one with Jordan Zimmerman. He left for the Tigers. Doug Fister as well. They approached him. You know, he he, you know, had a bad year last year. Um, and ended up with the Astros. So, you know, they, they didn't spend those money on those guys, that money on those guys. So 
they have kind of money to spend, you know, so who will they try to go for? I mean, you would think maybe that, you know, they'll, they'll make a genuine approach to Strasbourg because of that. Uh, or really, honestly, you'd think that maybe they're, they're kind of saving that money to, to pursue Harper uh, down the road. As you mentioned, they let Zimmerman and Desmond walk this past offseason, Denard Span as well. And as far as impact talent goes, they didn't really add slam dunk above average major league regulars anywhere. They did fill in some holes as needed, and there's still some young talent on the farm. Guys like Trey Turner and Lucas Giolito who will probably play roles on the 2016 team. But they were in on Jason Hayward and others. What is the future for this team in the free agent market as sort of the Masson kerfluffle winds on through the courts? Yeah, I mean, like, uh, in, in, uh, in a nutshell, Masson, uh, it comes down to about $20 million a year uh, that, that the Nationals are not receiving versus what uh, Major League Baseball rules that they should receive. So, I mean, that, that's not an insubstantial amount of money, but obviously the learners are some of the richest owners in baseball. You know, Ted Lerner's worth $4.5 billion. So, ultimately, if they did want to go spend on a free agent, they could. So, I mean, this offseason, uh, you know, they did try for those big players, the Hayward. They tried for Upton. They tried for Cespedes and did not get them. And that would be more for protection for Jason Worth, uh, you know, who'd be 37 this year, you know, who's been injured a lot. He has two years left on his deal. That would be more to kind of protect the long-term future of the outfield. You know, maybe when work leaves, you know, after two years, or and then uh, who's going to play alongside Harper uh, for the next several years? So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you know, lo- long term, I think they've done a decent job the last several years, actually better than that, uh, of of backfilling the organization while trying to to stay, you know, very competitive on a major league level. You know, they they traded Steven Souza at his height, you know, last winter, not this winter, the previous winter, uh, for Joe Ross and Trey Turner, and, and Joe Ross figures to be a big part of the rotation this season. Um, a good young right hand right hander with a with a pretty good future, and then Trey Turner, who could either be their shortstop or second baseman of the future, um, in the leadoff hitter, you know, with uh, really standout standout speed. So, you know, they have uh, kind of top high end prospects like that. Um, and some scouts even told me that, that they thought Turner and Julito were the best, you know, uh, position player and uh, pitching prospects they saw in the minors last season. So they've set themselves up well uh, for young players to kind of grow up alongside and kind of join Harper and and Scherzer, you know, in the future. Uh, so I think, you know, they'll have money coming off the books again uh, next winter. Uh, they had a substantial amount coming off this, this past winter, and they used it to, you know, help build the, you know, kind of the bullpen from scratch, get Daniel Murphy. So I think they'll have a little more next offseason, and they could potentially go out and, and get big guys that they wanted to, and I, and I think they probably should. Uh, but we'll kind of see. They, they've set themselves up, like I've said, to go multiple directions with young guys and, and mix them with veteran guys. For me, the most underrated player on the Nationals the past few years is Anthony Rendon. He's had some leg injuries that have kept him off the field. Moving back to third base full-time this year might help with that, but what do they expect from him in 2016? Yeah, I mean, a number of team officials have already you know, pointed to Rendon being like, you know, an enormous X-factor for this team this season. Uh, just the things he can do on the baseball field, uh, you know, he does most of them well, from base running, you know, very well, sorry, from base running to, to, to fielding, to hitting for average, to hitting for some power. Uh, drawing walks, uh, scoring runs, you can kind of do it all. So I think, you know, where he hits in the lineup is obviously to be determined. You know, Dusty Baker's been hitting him middle to lower in the lineup, I think, thinking that he, he, he might be an RBI, you know, type hitter for him, you know, a guy to drive people in. But, you know, Rendon, you know, I shouldn't be told just short for that. You know, he, this guy could hit two, uh, maybe even three in some major league lineups uh, because he has some of that speed, makes contact, has some power. Um, I think that he... Uh, will help balance out the lineup in a way 
you know, with Harper and Zimmerman and Worth in a sense, you know, in, in a way, I think he's a complete player. And, you know, if, say, anything happens to Worth or Zimmerman in terms of injuries this season, I think Rendon, um, if he bounces back to the, the 2014 form uh, where he finished fifth in, in MVP voting in the NL, um, I think the Nationals could probably withstand injuries to those big guys if Rendon can kind of come back to that. How do you see the middle infield shaking out going into the season? Obviously, they got Daniel Murphy in in the offseason, and he'll probably be the everyday second baseman. But what's a timetable for Trey Turner and in the interim, who plays shortstop? Yeah, I mean, for now, I think, uh, you know, it's, you know we're two, two some weeks left of spring training, uh, and Trey Turner's still in camp. And, you know, I think, uh, ultimately, I think they think he needs a little more work defensively. Uh, they do not want to rush him. Last year was his first full season in professional baseball. And while he did well, um, he really had not played that full pro season yet. The rigors, uh, you know, jumping all the way up from, uh, you know, all the way up to Syracuse, Triple A Syracuse. A new organization, and then reaching the majors. So I think, you know, defensively, I, I think they need, you know, they can do a little more work. You know, he made 20 plus errors last year, uh, you know, the entire season in the minors. But they, they, they are very, very high on him in his future. He has 80, 80 great speed. You know, some guys have put him at that level. I mean, he's really, really fast. Um, you know, could profile as a, as a leadoff hitter. He makes good contact. You know, has a, has a little bit of power. You know, I think that that, that they think that they don't need to rush him. They want to develop this kid correctly. So they obviously have a guy, you know, Danny Espinosa, um, who all along, even when Ian Desmond was here, Espinosa was always believed to be the best defensive shortstop in the system. Has a very good arm, has good range, uh, had to play second base while, while, while Desmond was here. The thing with Espinosa, the thing that would stop him from being on the field is his bat. You know, last year he kind of had a resurgent year, kind of bounced back after two some years of injuries and struggles. Um, showed uh, the power again from the left side, simpler stroke. He's been off to a slow start in spring training, uh, but I don't think you know he's done enough yet uh, to truly scare them out of not giving him the job. But I think you know if if he does not crater more in spring, you know I would think that Espinosa is the shortstop this season, and, and defensively uh, there could be a bit of an improvement off uh, Desmond's errors. So I think in that sense, uh, you know they don't really need to count on too much from Espinosa offensively. They can bat him lower in the lineup. He'll give some power. Can hit better against from the right side against lefty pitchers. And they obviously have Stephen Drew, who they gave a major league deal to on the offseason to kind of be the backup shortstop. So in doing so, they've protected themselves against not needing uh, Turner to be rushed and in, in up this season uh, early. Uh, should any injuries happen, happen to Espinosa or Drew, I would obviously see Turner up uh, to help them. Uh, but they've set themselves up where they don't need, they don't, they're not banking on him uh, this season. The other major acquisition the Nationals made this past offseason is a new manager with Dusty Baker taking over the reins from Matt Williams. What's been the biggest difference that you've seen in the clubhouse between the Williams era and the Baker era so far this spring? Yeah, just more relaxed. Uh, you know, Dusty has a real gift in dealing with human, with, with uh, you know, interacting human level with other players. Uh, I think something that's, that's something that's kind of been undersold uh, with a lot of managerial hires, you know, the newer, younger, I guess, more analytic, you know, focused uh, guys. Uh, you know, Dusty, you know, in the human element is very good at that. He can connect with people, you know, if you're a Venezuelan player, if you're an African-American player, if you're a white player, you know, he is able to talk to you if you're from uh, California, from Venezuela, from New York. He's been all over the world, all over the United States. He can relate to you on anything from music. He has a 17-year-old son, so he can relate to some of the younger generation in that sense. So, you know, he can talk to all types of people. And, and in that sense, they needed someone like that. You know, the, the, the relationship between the clubhouse and the dugout, uh, sorry, and the managerial manager's office 
uh, was kind of frayed last year between Matt Williams. You know, some of the problems he had in communication with them, some some issues with the players had directly with him. Uh, you know, some of the decisions it uh, it undermined. You know, kind of Matt's standing with the players. So I think you know Dusty can help restore that. He's lighthearted. Uh, will you know kick guys in the butt if he has to. Um, and I think that's the biggest trait he has, just kind of getting the clubhouse united, having them feel better, um, and just communicating, you know, kind of better with the players. Uh, so I think that already uh, has kind of shown itself in spring training. All right, James, we'll let you go on this. For our listeners that might not be as familiar with the Nationals, who's a player maybe a little bit under the radar that have a big impact on their 2016 season? Man, uh, that's a really tough one. Uh, you know, I don't know. I think uh, I think Michael Taylor has shown you know a lot of you know a lot of great flashes in spring training so far. Obviously, it's hard to judge him against some spring training pitching, uh, but I think Dusty Baker has been very high on him. Thinks he will be an enormous you know factor for them this season. You know, the Nationals the last several years have leaned heavily on their fourth outfield. You know, Taylor was almost kind of rushed last year because the Narcs fan was so injured. But Taylor and a lot of scouts say this, you know, and I've and I've seen it too that Taylor in the future has the potential to be a 30-30 type player. He is fast enough uh, to steal that many bags. He has enough power uh, to left, to center, to right. Uh, you know, he has a lot of line drive home runs with him uh, you saw last year. Uh, obviously, what held him back last year was making enough contact and striking out too much. Uh, but he has shown enough flashes uh, defensively, you know, in terms of speed as well. Uh, has a very good arm in center, um, has a top to be a 30-30 type guy. So I think, you know, if anything does happen to Harper, uh, say, Revere, uh, or worse, you know, I think there'll be a rotation anyway to bring Taylor in. But I think Taylor, if he continues making these strides and, and stays, uh, you know, doesn't chase the pitches like he had last year outside of the strike zone, I think he could be an enormous factor for them, uh, you know, this season. James Wagner covers the Nats for the Washington Post, and you can follow him on Twitter at James Wagner WP. Thanks for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me. All right, that's it for today. Thank you to Chelsea and James for coming on. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Today is five Patreon supporters to thank Michael Underhill, Richard Anderson, Diana Childress, Nick Sievers, and Brian Hare. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild and rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can contact us at podcast at baseballprospectus.com or message us on Patreon. You can buy our book. It's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, and it comes out on May 3rd. It's the story of how Sam and I ran an independent league baseball team, the Sonoma Stompers, last summer, tried to do so according to sabermetric principles, learned some valuable lessons, accumulated some sad and silly stories, survived the summer, and lived to write a book about it. You can pre-order it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or anywhere else. And if you order it early, you might get it a little early. You can also get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Play Index by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code BP when you subscribe. That's all for today. We will be back tomorrow with the preview for the San Francisco Giants. Washington, D.C. It's the greatest place to be. It's not the cherry.